Hello there, it's Peter Mansbridge, host of The Bridge, where we reflect on the issues of the day and how they could impact you. Politics, public health, technology, they are just some of the topics you'll hear about. Cut through the clutter and tune into The Bridge, a serious XM podcast available everywhere. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. This fall, while the rest of the world still struggles with COVID, the people of Uganda have been facing something far worse. An outbreak of the Ebola virus in Uganda is continuing to spread with 109 confirmed cases and 30 deaths. According to authorities, six children in the same family have come down with Ebola in the country's capital, Kampala. Ebola may not be as contagious as COVID, but it's much more deadly. And it certainly is transmissible. And it has made the jump across the ocean before. Today, we are providing the information that an individual traveling from Liberia has been diagnosed with Ebola in the United States. That clip was from 2014. And it wasn't the only case of Ebola in North America. Fortunately, at least for Canadians and Americans, the virus did not escape quarantine. The mere threat of such a disaster, though, was enough to spur immediate action to develop and distribute a vaccine for that strain of Ebola, a vaccine that Canada had a significant role in creating. That strain of Ebola is not this one, however, and that vaccine won't work. But Canada, once again, has vaccine candidates that could. They have been ready for trials, in fact, for years. And Ebola is not the only virus I could say this about. It is only now, after months of an outbreak and dozens of deaths, that trials on this particular Ebola vaccine will finally, at long last, begin. Why is that? Why create a potential vaccine for a deadly contagious virus and not get it over the finish line? Why have people been dying in Africa when the means to save them has been waiting? I'll give you three guesses. The first two don't count. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jason Nickerson is the humanitarian representative to Canada for Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières. Hello, Jason. Hi, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Why don't you start by outlining the state of the current Ebola outbreak uh, that we're seeing? Where is it? How bad is it? What do we know about it? Sure. So, um, so first of all, Ebola is what's called a viral hemorrhagic fever. Um, so it's from a family of viruses that are called phyloviruses. Um, and they're, you know, particularly nasty kinds of, of viruses, um, mm-hmm. that have caused sporadic outbreaks, mostly in uh, Central and, and uh, West Africa uh, over many years. So, you know, the first discovery of, of the virus was sometime in the 1970s. And, and there's been, as I say, a sporadic outbreak since then. So 
at the moment, there is an outbreak of uh, Ebola that was declared in Uganda on September 20th. And since September 20th, there's been 142 confirmed cases uh, and 56 uh, confirmed deaths. You know, we've we've seen the, the pattern of disease uh, shift a, a few times throughout this outbreak. Um, so we saw a steep rise of cases in October um, when there was about 86 cases over a, a four-week period. Um, and then it slowed a little bit over the, the most recent weeks. And actually, right now, um, there have been no new cases that have been linked to community transmission uh, since sometime in mid to late November. Um, okay. So that's for sure a, a, a good sign. What has been, uh, at least until the past couple of weeks, so tricky about this particular outbreak compared to uh, others we've seen in recent years? So the thing to know is that there are different species uh, of, of Ebola. So most outbreaks are caused by a species of the Ebola virus um, called Ebola Zaire. So the sort of major outbreak that happened in West Africa uh, between 2013 uh, and, and 2016 mm-hmm. um, in Guinea and Sierra Leone and Liberia. So that, w- that was caused by Ebola Zaire. And you know, I don't, I don't want to say that it's it's common because these outbreaks remain sporadic. Right. But it, it is the more common species uh, of the Ebola virus that that causes outbreaks. Now, in Uganda today, it is an outbreak of a species of the Ebola virus called Ebola Sudan, um, and this is much rarer. And in fact, the last outbreak was. Um, sometime in summer of of 2012. Um, so really once every 10 years, we we have an outbreak of this kind of Ebola virus that, that we know of. Now, the challenge with that is that we actually don't have the same tools in terms of vaccines and therapeutics for Ebola Sudan as we do for Ebola Zaire. Um, for Ebola Zaire, there are two uh, approved vaccines and there are two uh, therapeutics that, that are used. Um, so we actually have pretty good tools uh, in the public health toolbox for controlling and, and treating Ebola Zaire. Um, but unfortunately, none of those work uh, for Ebola Sudan. This is admittedly a layperson's question, but uh, <laughs> even lay people have learned a lot more than they ever thought about vaccines over the past couple of years. Absolutely. Um, how is it that we have a vaccine or two vaccines in this case for one strain of a disease, but not for another? My understanding is that once you've got one, it's not that hard to adjust it um, or at least develop something that could work for the other. Yeah, you know, <laughs> these are what I would call a, a high risk, low probability kind of events. And the the challenge with that is that there's essentially a, a market failure for these kinds of vaccines and, and therapeutics, right? Because these outbreaks are, are sporadic, um, and quite frankly, they, they occur almost exclusively in economically poorer countries. They're simply not viewed as, as being, a, I mean, there's no lucrative market um, that's going to attract much investment uh, in the research and development that's needed to get these done hmm. um, on the part of the, the, the pharmaceutical industry. So, Despite all of the good work that's been done in creating vaccine candidates for not only Ebola, but but other quite uh, nasty uh, pathogens of, of real significant concern, getting these technologies, these vaccines and therapeutics, and even things like diagnostic tests to the finish line requires 
quite a bit of money to do the clinical trials and somebody to manufacture it and so on. Um, and by and large, the world has decided that, uh, you know, it should be profit-motivated pharmaceutical companies that take on this work. And, you know, despite the, the public health risk that I think is quite obvious, when the market doesn't exist, uh, you know, the market doesn't respond. Um, and unfortunately, that's the situation we find ourselves in, where we, we know there are diseases that present a real risk to global public health some of which actually have uh, vaccine candidates that that exist, um, but there's very little uh, incentive uh, on the part of, of, as I say, you know, a profit-motivated company to to get these to the finish line because the return on investment just simply isn't there. In a few minutes, we can talk about why we have to use terms like market failure when we're talking about vaccines and public health crises. But for the moment, um, because we do like to position our coverage of this stuff from a Canadian perspective, can you tell us briefly about the role that Canada's National Microbiology Lab plays in uh, finding these vaccines, if not getting them all the way to the finish line? Yeah, so Canada has, has really, I would say, punched above our weight um, in a lot of the science uh, behind Ebola vaccines in particular, but but also other you know technologies for for different viral hemorrhagic fevers. So it goes back to the, to really the early two thousands when the Public Health Agency of Canada's National Microbiology Lab, which is in Winnipeg, um, and is really you know a world class laboratory for dealing with high risk and, and special pathogens. Um, they started working on a on a vaccine. Um, they had good scientific expertise that that was in house. There was a recognized risk at that time that a virus like Ebola could could spread quickly from a small you know small community outbreaks to to a global public health epidemic or or pandemic. Um, but also Ebola was recognized as a, a bioterrorism threat at at that point. So there was a lot of sort of stars that that aligned, and so they set to work and and discovered an Ebola vaccine um, using something called a, a recumbent vesicular stomatitis virus, which is just the fancy name for, for the platform that they used. And, you know, did the necessary testing on, on the vaccine to show that it worked at least in animals and, and offered very good protection. Now, as I say, at the at the time, there hadn't been a large uh, outbreak uh, of Ebola. And so the, the market for these technologies was was quite small. So in 2010, Canada licensed the vaccine technology to a, a small biotech company in the United States. Uh, it was called Bioprotection uh, Systems, and they were actually working on cancer vaccines. Um, so they, you know, as far as we know, acquired the vaccine just for the intellectual property, essentially. Hmm. Um, but there was no subsequent work that was done on it uh, until um, the, the major outbreak in West Africa in, in 2013, 2014. Um, and at that moment, it, it was licensed uh, under quite a bit of public pressure from that American company to Merck, a large pharmaceutical company, mm -hmm. and they're the ones who continue to own it today. But the, you know, the clinical trials that were done in that outbreak received huge amounts of, of public funding from the Canadian government, uh, from the American government, and, and many others. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it ultimately is a, a vaccine that today is owned by, by Merck, but was developed through global collaborative efforts and, and collaborative funding, uh, including from Canada. Hello there, it's Peter Mansbridge, host of The Bridge, where we reflect on the issues of the day and how they could impact you. Politics, public health, technology, they are just some of the topics you'll hear about. Cut through the clutter and tune into The Bridge, 
a Sirius XM podcast available everywhere. I understand uh, from your writing and from uh, Doctors Without Borders that we've also, at this microbiology lab, developed a potential, uh, at least, vaccine candidate for uh, Ebola Sudan, which is mm-hmm. what we need to be worried about right now. Yeah, that's right. So uh, there are actually a number of vaccine candidates for really concerning viruses that were developed in the early 2000s um, for Ebola Sudan, Ebola Zaire, uh, Marburg, and Lassa fever. And unfortunately, there's actually been outbreaks of all three of these viruses this year alone. Um, there is an ongoing Lassa fever outbreak in uh, Nigeria. Uh, there was a Marburg outbreak in Ghana in July uh, of this year, and, and now we have Ebola Sudan uh, in, in Uganda. So Canada actually discovered potentially viable vaccine candidates um, for all of these diseases that have by and large been, been sitting on a shelf. Wow. Um, as I say, simply because there isn't a clear pathway for, for getting them to the finish line. Um, so there's a lot of good work uh, that's that's been done sort of ahead of time, but you know it's not just Canada, but really the world doesn't have a, a good strategy for moving these things forward and, and making sure we've got doses in, in places where we need them so that we can do the the clinical trials to assess if they're effective or not, and and hopefully you know create stockpiles to be able to deploy them when when they're needed. Why not? I realize that's a big question, and, and I don't intend it as a rhetorical one because you've already kind of mentioned that, you know, private companies are typically needed to come in and do this work. Why can't Canada or uh, other countries or, you know, the World Health Organization, uh, which presumably has some stake in this, uh, help get these vaccines to the finish line without needing private companies to be able to make a profit? Yeah, I mean, I think especially coming out of COVID, that's the the conversation that we we need to be having, right? I mean, we're an organization that has long been pushing for equitable and affordable access to all medical technologies. Um, And we've seen time and time again what happens um, when medicines and vaccines are priced out of reach uh, of of our patients and the the health systems that we work in. And so, you know, there's there's a fundamental problem here with uh, medicines availability and and affordability. But in this case, there is truly a a, a market failure for a lot of emerging infectious diseases uh, research and development. Um, And I think relying on kind of prevailing market forces to to pick some of these technologies up and and finish them quickly and and make them globally accessible is it, it's just simply not going to work. So coming out of COVID, you know, there there is and I shouldn't say coming out of COVID, but yeah. you know, after living through COVID for the last two and a half or three years, you know, I think that there is starting to be a recognition that we we need to find some way of developing enough doses and, and pre-positioning doses of viable vaccine candidates for some of these high-risk, low-probability diseases and making sure that, you know, we've got things like clinical trial protocols that are already developed so that we can, you know, we know how we're going to do the science to assess if, if these vaccines work or not, but also just manufacturing some of these doses uh, ahead of time. Now, that's going to require somebody to pay for this stuff. Right. If, it's not going to be uh, pharmaceutical companies. Um, it's going to have to be governments and other 
entities. I mean, there, there are certainly some charities that, that have an interest in this as well. Um, but I think by and large, it's, it's likely going to be governments that are going to have to put money up front to establish some of these vaccine candidate stockpiles um, and consider you know, where we're going to keep them, how we're going to maintain them, and, and what we're going to do with them so that we can roll them out quickly and, and ethically during disease outbreaks uh, in the hope of you know, generating enough evidence that we can, as I say, get them to the finish line um, when we need them. Because right. simply waiting for outbreaks to happen and then uh, scrambling to try and find vaccine doses or, or starting afresh puts us well behind the, the eight ball. So where are we on that right now? And that's my last question, I guess. Uh, it's too much probably to ask to, for Canada to do this on its own. But given that we've played such a key role in developing some of these vaccines, what are you hearing from our government? What have other governments uh, or health organizations around the world said about this? And, and are they coming to your consensus? And is anything moving on that front? Yeah, you know, I think there's a few things that are happening. So first of all, there's a recognition that we, unfortunately, we we are very likely to see more emerging infectious disease outbreaks um, happening over the coming decades. Um, so there was a, a modeling paper that came out uh, sometime in the spring or the summer that assessed that over the next 50 years, there could be somewhere in the vicinity of 15,000 cross-species transmission events, meaning, you know, a virus uh, moves from from one species to another simply because of climate change, right? I mean, there's just going to be more interaction between humans and wildlife and and so on um, over the coming years. And I think governments and medical organizations are well aware of the fact that, uh, you know, we're seeing shifting patterns of disease. We're seeing, you know, diseases emerge in, in places where they, they just traditionally haven't um, as a result of, of climate change and, and, you know, global mobility. So I think the, the risk to an extent is, is recognized. Now, what to do about this, I think, remains one of the fundamental questions because it does require global collaboration. Good thing we're great at that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I mean, I don't think we need every country in the world working on their own Ebola vaccine. We need a few good candidates, um, but we need to also invest in in vaccine manufacturing to make sure that we have we have doses on hand. Yeah, and you know, we're not talking about huge numbers of doses either. Uh, in the global stockpile of the Ebola Zaire vaccine, it's it's five hundred thousand doses, which is a lot, but you know, these things are never going to be blockbusters. So I think there's probably a role for investing in in local production, uh, which of course is a major topic of, of conversation coming out of COVID, including here in Canada, where we have a, a, a public vaccine manufacturing facility that has yet to produce a single dose of, of anything. But really what we need from governments uh, is, is to come up with a plan Right? We need to continue to invest in, in research and development of medical technologies uh, like vaccines and therapeutics for things that have really significant public health impacts, both in Canada and, and abroad. But ultimately, you know, I think somebody's got to take the wheel, so to speak, and sort of drive us down a path that has a clear direction so that we're not just discovering things and and letting them linger on the shelf in the hope that somebody comes and picks them up, um, but actually, you know, discovering and recognizing useful technologies um, and pushing them through the the clinical trials uh, to to generate the evidence that we need um, to hopefully have them available when when we need them. 
Speaking of clinical trials, I love when we get the opportunity to end a show that that can be mostly depressing on a slightly positive note. So tell me about these clinical trials that are finally due to actually begin in Uganda. Yeah, so there is actually going to be a clinical trial um, that's going to start uh, hopefully sometime in the next couple of days. And so there's actually a, a number of vaccine candidates uh, that exist for this specific uh, Ebola Sudan species. So uh, in the clinical trial, it's going to be led by uh, Ugandan researchers. Um, there's going to be three vaccines that are that are trialed. One's uh, from an organization called the Sabin Vaccine Institute. One's from the University of Oxford. Um, and one is from a, a not-for-profit called uh, IAVI. Um, and they're the ones who actually have the license for this Canadian-discovered uh, vaccine technology. Um, and they're also working on, on vaccines for, for some other viral hemorrhagic fevers. So the first doses actually arrived in-country on Thursday, and there were 1,200 doses of the, the Sabin vaccine that arrived, and then the other vaccine candidates should come in, in the coming days. So, you know, hopefully the, I guess I'll say the, the silver lining in all of this is that you know there are some vaccine candidates that that hopefully you know will will get to go through a clinical trial and 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 generate some evidence and and hopefully that leads to you know some some vaccines that are available for use um in in future outbreaks but um you know there's there's sort of an interesting twist in all of this which is that the canadian discovered vaccine we didn't actually know that there were doses that that existed of it um until sometime in october huh. um because it you know, it went through this really long, circuitous path from the, the Canadian government's National Microbiology Lab, where it was discovered in the early 2000s. It was licensed to this American company in 2010, and then Merck acquired it in 2014, gave it back to the Canadian government, who then licensed it to, to IAVI. You know, it was this really long path, and and it, it wasn't until October that, that Merck actually discovered that they had made 100,000 doses of it uh, sometime in 2015 or 2016 and and basically didn't tell anybody and and um, you know found them in a freezer somewhere and are making them available for for this clinical trial so you know look this is a good thing there's there's vaccine doses that are being mobilized but I think it really it gets to the heart of the fact that you know we just need a a, a better more predictable way of of uh, doing vaccine and, and drug development um, for these kinds of emerging infectious diseases, so that we're we're better prepared and, and don't have to rely on a pharmaceutical company, you know, finding a hundred thousand doses somewhere behind the ice cream in the freezer. <laughs> well, fingers crossed, at least uh, for this vaccine and for a better process in the future. Thank you so much for this, Jason. Thanks so much for having me, Jason Nickerson. Humanitarian Representative to Canada for Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières. That was the big story. Earlier this week, we discussed genetic genealogy and the role you or anyone else in your family could play in bringing to light a crime committed by a family member in the past. We did initially say that this would be awkward, which sparked this truly excellent response from a listener. Play the voicemail, Joe. Just listen to the episode on the genetic um, crime tracing. You, you and your guest made it seem as if that would be really awkward or somehow bad for someone to discover that they had uploaded information that um, led to one of their relatives being con convicted of a heinous crime. <laughs> Shocking, perhaps, but it would be, wouldn't that be the greatest thing ever? Wouldn't that be if 
if some uncle, great uncle of yours, had committed a rape and murder, and you were in the chain that got them arrested and finally brought account for that, that'd be the best thing ever, would it not? Now that was The Big Story. You can find us at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca, or you can call like that fellow did. Leave us a message. If it's that good, we might play at 416-935-5935. You can find The Big Story in every podcast player. If you're in Apple, you can check out our subscription, but don't worry, the entire podcast still remains free. You can listen to any episode you like without paying. You can also get us on the smart speaker, Just ask it to play the Big Story podcast and you will get the latest episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.